Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, thank you so much for joining this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. Something a little bit different for you today. My guest is Naomi Fisher. She is a clinical psychologist and she is the author of the book Changing Our Minds, which focuses on self-directed education. This is a fascinating interview and the reason I wanted to bring Naomi on is because I'm getting a hell of a lot of DMs around the education system and alternative choices. So I hope this goes a long way to helping you guys out. Naomi is not a Bitcoiner yet, but these two areas of life, they cross over so perfectly. The homeschooling, unschooling, self-educated um, crowd are taking self-sovereignty for their education. And as we know in the Bitcoin space, we are taking money away from state. We're separating money from state. If you do either one of those things, you will naturally be led down the rabbit hole of the other. So if you are separating money from state, you will end up separating education from state. Believe me when I say that and vice versa. If you've separated education from state, you will fall down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. So please reach out to Naomi once you've listened to this episode. Before we get to this uh, interview, I would just like to give the deserved shout out to the companies that have partnered with me in this in this journey as I've built out the podcast. So we'll start in the UK and that's coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. Go start stacking your sats. That's a Bitcoin only exchange. In Europe, you have Relay, R-E-L-A-I dot C-H, forward slash Bitten. In the US, you have SwanBitcoin.com. You guessed it, forward slash Bitten. These three companies are going to help you fiat cost average out of your fiat slowly, steadily, and surely into Bitcoin. A savings technology, a store of value the world's next money, the world's next reserve asset, call it whatever you want, however you want to characterize it, it doesn't really matter at this point, just start slowly stacking some sats and get onto a different level of security, something you probably never ever have felt before. But do remember that you will have to take control of that at some point. And when you do reach that point, you will need a hardware wallet. That is definitely recommended. You can go to shiftcrypto.ch and get one of their, forward slash bitten of course, and get one of their Bitcoin only wallets. That's the, bit, the Bitbox 02, Bitcoin only. So remember, three Bitcoin only companies, one Bitcoin only wallet. There's no noise. That's all pure Bitcoin. That's where you want to be really appreciate you guys for listening and sharing and liking and retweeting whatever it is you do i hope you enjoy this interview please reach out to naomi after the show and thanks for sticking around this has been part of the wall of content 
project that I'm putting together. I'm trying to drop an episode every day. We'll see how long I can make this go. Take care, guys. Enjoy the show. Okay, Naomi, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. And uh, just a little context for for the listeners. Uh, Naomi and I, uh, we met each other last year when I interviewed her for the Homeschooling Global Summit. And I was blown away with with the information that she was giving me. And she's since finished her amazing project of her book. And with what's been going on over the last year uh, and facing now kids going back to school or not, uh, I thought it'd be a brilliant time to bring Naomi on and, and share her expertise. So Naomi, for those that are listening, please, can you give a, a little background as to who you are and, uh, and what you do? Thank you. Yes, I can. So my name's Naomi Fisher, and I'm a clinical psychologist, an English clinical psychologist. And I have two children who have never been to conventional school. Um, they were unschooled for the first six years of their what would have been school career. Then they went to a school in France, actually, a self-directed school. And now they're at the Self-Managed Learning College in Hove. And one of the things that struck me as a clinical psychologist was how many children I was seeing in my professional life who were really unhappy at school or who's, who were having a lot of difficulties at school, actually, who were struggling. And how, as a psychologist, what happens to those children is that I'm asked to diagnose them, to give them a label, really, and to say there's something wrong with this child. And I felt increasingly uncomfortable with the way that we were looking at the child who doesn't fit into the school system and saying there's a problem with this child, rather than looking at the school system and saying, hang on, maybe there's a problem with the school system and how it's not really meeting the needs of so many children. And that was particularly salient for me because I had my own children at home and I could see how they were developing without school and how they were learning without school and how that was going really well. And I was thinking... But I, and I'm being asked to do something so different at work and it just didn't hang well with me at all. So that was where my book came in, actually, because I thought psychology, we don't, the psych, school was never founded on psychological principles. Nobody ever thought, how do children, need, what do children really need best to develop? I know they need to be seated in a class of 30 with an adult at the front talking to them. That's going to work. No one ever said that. It was basically convenience. It was like, what can we do with lots of children? Try and get some information into them. We'll, we'll stick them in classes and put a teacher at the front. But actually, we know so much now about like child psychology, how children learn, how they develop. And none of that has really been integrated into schools. Schools are still quite like they were in Victorian times. In terms of model, they teach different stuff, but the teacher at the front, children in the desks, that really hasn't changed much for a long time. So my book is looking at the psychology of self-directed learning and why I think it works and why I think there are really deep principles at work behind why it works and how it can work well for lots of children, particularly those who really struggle at school. And what's the name of the book, Naomi? So my book is called Changing Our Minds, How Children Can Take Control of Their Own Learning. And it's published by Little Brown and you can get it all major booksellers in the UK or on Amazon. And it has a preface by Peter Gray as well. Oh, well done. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Okay, so let's let's take this back to your own schooling career because there's 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 clearly something that there's probably a straight line to draw between your your own experience and your line of work or what became your line of work and then your decision to self-direct um to to choose self-directed education with your own kids so what was going back on? What well, my own in, school in those experience. Days. 
Yeah. Well, I actually went to 11 different schools growing up. I moved, my parents worked in various, my parents worked in a development. And so we moved countries a lot, including living in Botswana, living in the Congo. We lived in different parts of the UK. And I experienced all sorts of different education systems. I went to a Waldorf school, Steiner school when I was quite young. I went to an international American school in the Congo. I went to a grammar school in Birmingham, past 11 plus, but it wasn't 11 plus, but I passed it and went there. I've done, I, I went to, many different kinds of school, state comprehensive school. I went, to, you know, I really ran the gamut of schools. And one of the things that struck me moving from each school system is how they all had very different requirements as to what we had to do, but they all felt that those requirements were really important. So this particularly became evident when we came back to the UK, because up to that point, I hadn't had to wear a school uniform at school. I came back to the UK and suddenly we had quite a strict school uniform. And we had to wear ties, we had to wear skirt, girls had to wear particular skirts, they had to be particular length. And everybody just accepted that this was how things had to be. You all had to wear this uniform and it became part of how the school ran. So we used to have a teacher at the front door measuring our skirts to make sure they weren't either too long or too short. And I was just thinking, this is mad. The last school I went to, we could wear anything we wanted and everybody wore jeans. That was it, basically. There was no problem about skirt length because no one choose, chose to wear a skirt. <laughs> so they've created these rules and these systems and now enforcing them has become a thing that we all have to do. And I started thinking that how much of school is actually just about rules and systems and controlling children and actually not about learning at all. So I think that was where part of my skepticism started. Also the fact that I moved from curriculum to curriculum to curriculum, never followed a curriculum all the way through, and yet it didn't seem to matter. So I admit, you know, I didn't study anything from the way they say, nothing was linear in my education because each school system had a different way of doing things. Like at the Waldorf school, they didn't actually teach you to read until you were seven or eight. That's their philosophy. They don't do reading until quite late. But I'd already learned to read earlier on, so that was okay. But we were doing German, we were learning knitting, we were doing lots of art and craft. Then I went to quite a traditional British primary school. Then I went to, you know, we moved, I moved around all these different schools. But it wasn't like, gosh, I have to catch up with all these years of stuff I haven't done beforehand. It was more like, OK, you know, I'm at this is kind of level we're doing stuff at. Doesn't really seem to matter that I didn't do what we did before. So I think there was this, I had developed this kind of scepticism about whether the things that people said were true about education really were true because they didn't seem to be true from my experience. But everybody who stayed in one school throughout seemed to feel that they were. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And it's very pervasive because the teachers believe it and then the parents believe it. Yeah, because the parents have been schooled, the teachers have been schooled, everyone's been schooled. And in fact, the difference between France and England is one of the things I write about in my book, that in France, um, people believe that other things are, are essential. Like in France, people think that dicte is essential, you know, that children do dictation. And they have really quite small children sitting down doing dictation for hours, writing everything down word for word. And if you look for, in fact, I had a French friend who got in touch with me because she was teaching her kids English at home. And she said, I'm really looking for dictate in English. What should I search for? Where should I find it? And I was like, you're not going to find it because they don't do it. <laughs> no one thinks that you have to spend hours doing dictation in English schools. And 
So in England, they have different things they think are essential, which the French think are not essential at all. And even just crossing the channel from England to France, which, you know, in the face of things, isn't very big, isn't a very big difference. People have totally different assumptions about what you have to do. And they think if you don't do these things, disaster, you know, you don't do enough dictate. That must be why children aren't learning the things that we need to learn. But yeah, actually, when you start to dig a bit, it doesn't, it just it doesn't seem to be the case. The dictate horrified me when I figured out what the kids were doing. Mm-hmm. Because they they would come home and they would try and uh, we, we would try and help them with we just thought it was a basic spelling test. Yeah, we didn't realize that they had to sit there for half an hour whilst the teacher read out a paragraph or a page of a book, and yeah. they literally had to write down word for word what she was saying. Everything. Yeah. With the accents. Yes, with everything and everything circled in red too, right? You have uh, only errors. Wrong, 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 wrong. <laughs> It was unreal. Yeah. yeah. When when that when that became apparent to me, I was like, yeah. "Oh man, we've got to get them out of here. This is just a joke." Yeah. And then and like you say, like the 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 real focus on the cursive as well. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I don't oh yeah, get writing that. the same way. Everybody has to learn how with the same handwriting. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what are we doing? Yes. Yes. Like standardizing. We're standardizing kids and we're saying this is essential. You all have to do this. And it's just like, who says? Why? When when did that get decided? <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. But so okay, so you, you've gone through this different uh, gamut of schools, as you said. Yeah. Um, something pulls you down the rabbit hole of um clinical psychology or psychiatry psychology yeah psychiatry doctors psychologists aren't okay all right (laughs) that's that's another feather in my cap of uh knowledge okay so what what takes you there what what yeah oh well in fact my psychology getting into psychology is a bit of a story for me about about self-directed discovering my passion because I was somebody, I was very well, I was very well schooled, I would say. I went through school doing well, getting accolades, getting my A's at GCSE, getting my high grades. And I found it quite hard to connect with what I was actually interested in, as opposed to what I was getting results from. So, and in fact, because everybody told me at school that I was very clever, I was very able, I was encouraged to choose things that were seen as challenging. So rather than actually listening to what I was really interested in, I ended up doing physics, chemistry, and advanced maths. I do actually love maths. Maths is quite, it was a passion, but physics and chemistry weren't really passions. And advanced maths, when I did my international baccalaureate, which is what I did instead of A-levels. And I then went on to do medicine. So I applied to do medicine. I, in fact, applied to do medicine at Cambridge which is one of the most competitive things you can apply. You know, it's a very competitive university to apply to. And again, I think it was partly because it was like, what's the most difficult thing that I could do? Okay, medicine at Cambridge, pretty difficult. Turned out medicine at Cambridge was really difficult. I have to say, I think I I hit it then. In fact, I remember thinking in my first year, it's like, wow, all the way through my school career, you know, people have been saying, oh, you'll be, you'll find the next level really challenging. It'll really stretch you. And every time I was like, no, it hasn't got to Cambridge. I was like, yeah, okay, this is, it's, I've got here. <laughs> They're really stretching me now. Enormous amounts of information you had to memorize pretty well, spot on. And for me, medicine just really wasn't my thing, actually. It turned out I did, I struggled through two years of it. I found it really hard going. I didn't find it very exciting. But once you're on the track of being a medic 
and being so in fact this connects with what we were just saying about psychiatry psychology once you're on the track of being a medic it's quite hard to step off it when you're in training because it's kind of seen as you've you've made it you know you've got onto this course which has a clear vocation it's got high status why would you go and do something else you've done the really tricky bit you've got on and now you've got to put in your hours you've got to do it so two years in I we my you know the university has a system where you can choose to do anything you like for your third year you can study something else and it's actually quite an amazing thing that Cambridge has you could literally study Chinese if you wanted to in that year you could do anything and I chose psychology and the moment I started doing it I was like this is what I meant to do I love it I just love it and it just like flowed it was like you know whereas my lectures within the med in the medicine had been like whoa this is such hard work gosh I've got to do this work psychology it was just like just went in no problem I could I was reading the stuff because I was fascinated by it I was writing extra essays because I enjoyed it so much my supervisions were like the best time of the week you know it was just crazy how different it was so I was like okay this I have to follow this I cannot go back to medicine and I had a place at medical you know I had the next step I had it all set up I had the place and everybody was like, gosh, you can't, you're really going to leave? Why, why don't you be a psychiatrist instead, is in fact what they said. And I was like, no, 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 I want to go and be a psychologist. So I actually went and I did a PhD in autism first. So I didn't go off to be a clinical psychologist straight away because I'd only done one year of studying psychology, academic psychology. And I really wanted to go and just explore academic psychology more. So I did a PhD in autism. And then after that, I got onto a clinical psychology doctorate. So I actually have two doctorates in psychology. The second one's a clinical one. And that's really about applying psychology to people who have mental health problems or children who have difficulties such as autism or ADHD. It's about using psychology with what they call clinical populations, although I don't really like the term clinical populations because it kind of is quite medical. And actually, my way of thinking about psychology isn't really very medical. I don't. I don't really like the medical model as a way of thinking about people's psychological difficulties. So that's that's where I got into psychology. <laughs> and then this this leads into how you started doing work with uh, with the kids, right? And, yeah. So um, I was so with autism. So there was so there were two strands going on in my life. There was my children. So I had my children. I actually in when I started as a psychologist, I worked with adults, and I still most of my work in the NHS has been with adults. Um, but I also had my children when I'd been working for a year or two. And from all the psychology I had studied, a lot of it was about benefits of play. It was about how children learn best when, um, when they can explore freely, when you know, the world around them responds to them. And I tried to create that kind of environment for my young children. And then I started looking at what would happen to them when they went to school. And I was like, but this just doesn't fit. You know, how is this going to work? Because suddenly I've done this. I've, For example, we made a lot of effort so that they weren't punished for things. They weren't. I, did, I tried not to praise them very much. That sounds a bit weird. I didn't. I tried not to use rewards and punishments to manipulate their behavior. And then suddenly they were going to go into school and the meeting at the school was all about how they were going to use their what they called their behavioral system. But it was effectively rewards and punishments to manipulate their behavior. And I was like, okay, so all of this stuff I've done for the first three and a half years, it's all out the window now because I don't get to choose any of that anymore. It's school gets to choose that kind of thing. And that felt quite wrong to me. And then alongside that, I had already an interest in autism because I'd done a PhD in autism. And I did some work in a neurodevelopmental team, which is a clinic where children come to be diagnosed. So basically we would be seeing children 
and often they'd have been waiting for two years to come and see us because that was how long the waiting list was and we would be seeing them for a day and then we'd be giving them a diagnosis either of autism or of ADHD or of no diagnosis those were basically the three options that we had and when I went when I was in that job I was a locum there I just felt increasingly uncomfortable about what I was doing to these children, that I was going through this list of problems that they had. And then I would say at the end of the day, yes, fine, you've got enough problems. You can have a diagnosis or no, you don't have enough problems. You can't have a diagnosis. But at no point really was I looking at the fit, the fit between what was going on with the child and the school. So for example, I remember one parent telling me about her little boy who was 10 and he was really unhappy at school. I mean, really unhappy. He was trying to escape a lot of the time. And he told his mum he felt like he was locked in a cage when he was at school. And she said, school has a zero, zero tolerance behavioural policy, which means that if he taps his pencil on the desk, he gets his name written up on the board. If he slouches back in his seat, he might get his name written up on the board. If he gets his name written up on the board so many times, he misses his playtime. And he was on this cycle of continual punishments and continual trying to push him into line for really minor infractions of behaviors, as I saw it as a 10 for a 10 year old. And he just couldn't get out of it. He was just miserable. And he was ending up, I think he'd spent 28 days of one term in isolation. So they would, the next step from punishment where he'd be in detention and then it would be sitting outside the head's office. So you'd be sitting outside the head or in the head's office on your own. And this poor little boy was just, <laughs> he just, you know, he was crying every night, saying, I don't want to go back to school. And all the help that I was meant to be offering him as a clinical psychologist in the team I was in, obviously there are other teams which offer different help. I don't want to say that was, you know, that was just what we were offering would be, yes, you meet criteria for a diagnosis. Yes, you know, you don't. And I just felt this is really wrong here. We need to be thinking about how the education system interacts with children, not just this child doesn't fit, therefore they're disordered. Oh my God, I got a lot of stuff to ask you. Um, <clears throat> so if we just sit with this little boy for, for a second, uh, let, let's say he's been on that wait list for two years. This has yeah. already been going on for two years. This yeah. is this is got worse horrible. and worse usually in that time. Yeah. So for the parents, the only way out for the parents really, because they're, they're probably too... Um, it, it, looking at alternative situations yeah. at like homeschooling or something like that they probably haven't even a lot of no. people don't even consider they, don't they, no. No. they don't even know it's an option in no. many even yeah. in the uk where it's you know nothing it's not illegal it's yeah. just, it, this is just um something we've got to hammer home to people it's your choice it's your kids mm. but that they believe their only choice what they're what they are pinning all of their hopes on yeah is a diagnosis yeah it is. Yeah. That is as sad as it gets. Because it's like the diagnosis is saying it's not your fault. Because the only options that we're really offering parents in this situation and children as well is either you are disordered, you get a diagnosis, or it must be your fault. And this is what um, Mary Boyle, who's a, psych a clinical psychologist at University of East London, she calls it the brain or blame dilemma that we put people in. We basically say, Either we're going to tell you there's something wrong with your brain or we're going to tell you it's your fault and there's no other option. 
So of course you're going to go for there's something wrong with your brain, <laughs> you know, particularly with a child, because it's not just the child who gets blamed, it's the parents who get blamed as well. So the, the school will say to the parents, you're not being strict enough with him at home. The parent, the school will call the parents and say, can you come in and collect him because his behavior is uncontrollable. You need to do something about this. The parents feel terrible. I talk to parents and they say, I can't sleep at night because I'm so worried about school's going to call me up in the morning and say, can you come pick him up? I've, you know, talked to parents who say, I'm there at school every day. I drop him off at nine, which is awful because he screams and shouts and doesn't want to go. By 10 o'clock, they're ringing me saying, can you come back in and pick him up? Because they can't handle him. What can I, how can I live a life here? There's no life for me. So at least if they say, yes, this child has ADHD or yes, this child has autism, suddenly that changes the game because now it's all about disability discrimination. If they start doing that, do you see? It sort of puts the school in a slightly different position. And it means that the parent can say, this isn't me, this is something wrong. But unfortunately it has that thing of it's something wrong with the child. And what I think, I mean, you know, absolutely children are very, very different. And some children have all sorts of difficulties which come into a cluster, which we could call autism or we could call ADHD. But I, I challenge the idea that this means there's something disordered or wrong with them, because I actually think that that is how they are. They have, they're just naturally, that is how they are. They're born, there's nothing wrong with them. Nothing has gone wrong. They just are different in the way they interact with the world. And the problem is that when that meets school, which is a very rigid standardized kind of environment, the two don't go together. The two don't mesh. And instead of looking at school and saying, okay, we think really school needs to change so this child can thrive. We say this child needs to change so that school can carry on. And maybe we'll give this child medication because then they can be made to conform to what's going on at school. And here's the other layer of, oh, okay, let's go there. So <laughs> they get the diagnosis. Yeah. And let's stick with ADD or ADHD or something yeah. like that. Perhaps, perhaps that's been the diagnosis in this case. Mm-hmm what what happens after that what is the diagnosis and what is the prescription and where so, does that lead so once you have a diagnosis of adhd that opens up some doors to you it might mean so it means that for example you may get help because you're now got a diagnosis that indicates you have special educational needs and some schools not all schools but some schools will use that diagnosis as a gate a gateway so if your child doesn't have a diagnosis, they can't get help, which actually makes no sense to me because if a child is struggling at school, they're struggling at school. You know, it doesn't really matter whether they meet, they fill a list, they check, check a list of criteria in a medical manual, which is what a diagnosis is. If the child has a tough time and needs help, the child needs help, whether or not they get a diagnosis. But anyway, so once they get a diagnosis, there's a possibility they might be able to access that. If you get a diagnosis of ADHD, you also have the possibility of medication. Not necessarily for everybody, but that means that you can be given medication. You can be given Ritalin or Adderall. And those medications are to help control your behavior in the classroom to make you more manageable. <laughs> in what way? What, yeah. did they, what do these drugs do? Well, to I'm not a doctor, okay? So they are actually <laughs> amphet they're amphetamines. They're the drugs that were used, that were used there were speed. But um, that's what they're derivatives of speed. So they are the drugs that many people had trouble with in the 1950s. But so, yeah, but um, so they, I don't know, they work on their brains. They, the, the weird thing is with all of this medication is that we, 
we, I think we're saying to children who don't actually have anything wrong with their brains that their brains are disordered. You know, the, their brain works a bit differently, but that doesn't mean it's disordered. But then we're giving them medication which does actually do something to their brains. It has to, it's the only way it works, yeah? So it's, it is moving, it's changing their brain, their neurotransmitters, and it changes so, the way they behave. You know, and to quote the late great Sir Ken Robinson, mm. you know, if you, if you give an eight-year-old low-grade clerical work to do for eight hours a day, don't expect a little Absolutely. bit, you know. Right, Absolutely. You know. So, I but, think the children who protest are the most aware. <laughs> they're, they're the, the ones normal know, ones. They're the ones who know what the system, they're the same, they're the most sane. They, you know, they are the ones who see through the system. <laughs> they're the ones that are saying, I don't like this gulag. Yeah. I don't like the fact that- Exactly that. They're saying, hang on a minute. Why? <laughs> or this is, I'm not going to comply with this. Why should I? And yeah. But they, instead, somehow that gets spun into this eight to 10 year old boy who can't sit still for eight hours in this confined classroom, listening to me flap my head. <laughs> is there's something, something wrong, with, wrong him. with him? Yeah, exactly. And there's clearly something wrong with the parents, as you were saying, the brain, the brain or blame. Yeah. So you, you have all of this power baked into the system that is yeah. either like there's something wrong with a kid yeah. and it's your fault, the parents, yeah. and yeah. now you need this diagnosis. Yeah. So you've got this anxiety hanging over this and you've got a two-year wait because, yeah. my God, they're doing this on a huge scale. Yeah. To basically, yeah. I mean, is this pushing drugs? Yeah, well, of course it is. For, it's creating a market, isn't it? Oh, I think oh it, it creates a market for something that otherwise isn't there. You know, if you read the work of um, Sammy Tamimi, he's a psychiatrist who talks a lot about ADHD and autism and the function of these diagnoses in society. But he talks about how they, they create a way where we think about ourselves as disordered and we think about ourselves or we think about our children as needing interventions and we there's a shift that's taken place whereas behavior previously would have been seen as something that was what we call psychosocial so about situation about you know often behavior if you ask if you ask societies where the medical model has not been quite so well diffused as it is in the UK if you ask them about children's behavior, they'll often say things like, oh, it's a phase. That's what children this age are like, you know, eight-year-old boys, they're just like this. You can't get them to sit down. They'll see it as a part of normal development. But we've moved to somewhere where we see all those kind of things as an indication of disorder very quickly. You know, very young children already, if they're not doing what other children are doing, ah, oh, they must have a disorder. There must be something wrong with them which I think is really unfortunately sort of infused through society. So parents are think like that too. They're sort of watching out for, is there a sign here of this child not doing what they're meant to be doing? Is there a, something I should be worrying about here? Is there some intervention I should be having? We've got this kind of very interventionist approach to develop to child development, which is odd because there's also not that much evidence that we can really hugely influence the child development. I mean, in terms of molding it to the way we want. Do you see what I mean? I think we can massively influence what goes on in a child's life by whether we manage to provide the, the circumstances for them to thrive or not. But to actually guide, say, a child who's really active into being a bit more compliant and sitting down, that's actually really hard work to do. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's because we're working against the nature of that child. 
rather than yeah. working with a disorder, I think. So, and and this brings us, uh, you know, if we were to take the focus away from the kid and put the focus mm -hmm. on, on the parent and for those people listening that, you know, perhaps like thinking about their kids, maybe they mm -hmm. have been in this situation, maybe they haven't, maybe they, they very much, very likely know people that have. Yeah. So it's probably hitting a pretty, this is how bad, you know, how oh, prevalent yeah. this Everybody. problem is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it, it, go on. Go, no, you go ahead. No, I was going to talk about this idea of selling sickness, which I think mm -hmm. we might have talked about. So there's these diagnoses are being sold to us. The pharmaceutical companies are selling us the diagnoses as a solution to our problems. And if you, it doesn't take long, if you have a look on the internet, you will find article after article which say things like, being diagnosed with ADHD transformed my life or, my, you know, my diagnosis of this in my 40s was magical. <laughs> and there, these articles are everywhere about how getting a diagnosis enabled somebody to feel, to understand themselves in a way that they've never understood themselves before. So, and there's a great book called Selling Sickness where the authors talk about how the pharmaceutical companies have deliberately marketed diagnoses because they're not allowed in the UK to sell drugs directly to consumers, yeah? So they can't say, they can't have an advert, probably in the US they'd be allowed to, but here, they can't have an advert that says, keep your child calm in class, get Ritalin, you know, you just can't do that. But you can get stuff out about how underdiagnosed ADHD is, how we need, you know, so many children are suffering from ADHD. If only they were diagnosed, things would be different. You can get stuff out there which raises awareness of these diagnoses. And a lot of what are called awareness campaigns are often actually funded by pharmaceuticals. So the more a society is aware of something like ADHD, the more people will get diagnoses because ADHD is essentially a diagnosis of a part of the spectrum of human variation. Do you see what I mean? It's not like they're not getting an illness. It's, it's saying these people who behave this way, we can give them a label of ADHD. Once we've done that and convinced them they actually have a disorder, then we can sell them medication. <laughs> this is unbelievable. Or oh, it's totally believable. I, I, it's just, but you know, to target kids, this is just the worst. It's very cynical, isn't it? It's a very cynical thing to do because what we know is, yeah, these children get given, their diagnoses are on the increase. More people are being diagnosed. Even now, is it still an upward trend? I think so. Um, I yeah. have no idea what's happened in the last year, actually. It's possible there's been a real flatlining of diagnoses because no one wants to go to the clinics. And also, yeah. of course, because children haven't been in school. And what's so interesting is that for some parents, the children being out of school and be doing remote learning has been a chance to see what their children are like when they're not interacting with school all the time. And I've working with parents who say, you know, this has been a period that we've never had in our lives since our child started school. We've never had such a period of calm before. We've never had a child who's so relaxed and so actually able to engage in learning because they're not having to manage the stress of going into school each day. So, um, sorry, I've lost it. What was I saying? No, no <laughs> that's, that's, that's okay. We, we have a visitor. <laughs> Lauren has, uh, yeah, yeah, you can come and say hello. Ask. 
Yeah, she, she generally asks a podcast uh, a question on each podcast, um, okay. usually at the beginning, but she was baking with mummy. Okay. So. Hi, Lauren. I'm Naomi. <laughs> this is Naomi. Um, this is what you wanted to ask. What's that? <laughs> you can't read my handwriting. No, no, no. no. Um, so to um, tell you what um, what I told Lauren before I was coming to speak with you, I said, now this yeah. isn't the usual Bitcoin podcast. So don't yeah. ask Naomi anything about Bitcoin. <laughs> no, she won't know. <laughs> <laughs> but you could probably ask her what ADHD is. Yeah. That's, yeah. What, that's what it was. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So now do, and you said you, you still don't know, right? Okay, so would you mind um, explaining to, to Lauren, who's 10? Um, what ADHD is. ADHD, or I think in, in the US that I refer to it as ADD. There's ADD two different ADD? things. So oh, there's okay. ADHD, which is stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. And then there's ADD, which is just Attention Deficit Disorder without the hyperactivity. So it's two different diagnoses. And basically it's a diagnosis that is given to people who find it really hard to concentrate or to pay attention to things. And it's particularly given to children who have difficulty sitting still at school, who have difficulty paying attention and who like to move around a lot. So when the hyperactivity bit really means children who just like to be on the go all the time. Mm. And but some kids just love dancing, don't they? <laughs> And it's about, you know, if, mm-hmm. yeah, what were you saying, Lauren? Or singing or like running or walking. Yeah, exactly. Some kids just like doing all that kind of thing. Um, and But when you put those children in an environment where they have to sit still for a long time and do what they're told, then sometimes that causes problems. And then sometimes those children get diagnosis of ADHD. That's what I think it is. And sometimes those those kids have to take special medicines. Yeah. And there what are do you think people... the medicines do? <laughs> uh... You can ask Naomi. Yeah. She's here to, to, to answer these questions. Uh... <laughs> what do you think the medicine might do? Yeah, what do you think the medicine might do? So the medicine helps them sit still and listen more in class. So if that's your aim, then, and it helps them behave themselves more when they're in class. So it helps them conform better to the school environment. And the strange thing about ADHD in particular is that different countries diagnose it in different ways and in different numbers. So actually there's a bit of a thing where people say French children don't get ADHD. I have a lot to say about that, which I don't think is true at all, but there are people who, I think there's even a book called French children don't get ADHD. Um, But there's also a thing that children who are the youngest in their school year are most likely to get an ADHD diagnosis. So children who are, you know, just, just turning four when they start school are much more likely to get an ADHD diagnosis a few years down the line than the children who have turned five, the older group, as the, the September birthdays as opposed to the August birthdays. So there's lots of indications that it doesn't mean what we think it means. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. that, that's shocking. That statistic is shocking. <laughs> yeah. And I can, I, I mean, clearly I, I can figure out why it's because the, the younger you are, the less developed your brain is and 
Okay, we are back. Sorry, listeners, my computer crashed. But what I was saying, uh, hopefully I'll be able to do some kind of editing magic. Uh, if not, I'm sure it'll all stitch together nicely. What I was saying about th those poor kids that are born at the beginning of the year, that the reason they are more likely to be diagnosed would be, I'm assuming, they're less developed. They always yeah. feel as though they're behind. That is a negative reinforcement loop that they have the lower grades than their peers and to start um you know, well they're just they're, they're just disengaged. less school ready because what we what mm. we mean by school ready is really children are ready to do what they're told and stop playing and and sit and listen and if you're nearly you know when you start school some children in the year group are nearly a year younger than the the eldest so in the uk the first year you start on the first of september it's everybody who's going to be five in that year. So it includes the person who was just four the day before on August the 31st and the person who's about to be five on, August, on September the 1st. And they are almost an entire year different in age, but they are in the same school system and they're being expected to do similar things. They're being expected to do, to be ready to do things. So the, those who are the eldest in the school year have had a whole extra year of development. And if you think about it, when you're five, that's 20% extra of your life. It's a, you know, it's a big, it's an enormous amount in terms of developmental readiness. And I think a lot of what we're diagnosing is kids who just are not developmentally ready to spend their, their days sitting in a class, listening to what they're taught. I mean, I don't think I'm developmentally ready for it, really. That isn't something. Don't, I don't send think me humans... back there. <laughs> exactly. There was don't a great book send... I read. I, I can't, there was a great article I read. I think it was by an occupational therapist. And she went and followed middle schoolers, so like 12 and 13-year-olds, around for a day doing what they day, did. And she just said, this is just intolerable. I cannot see how they do this because you've got to sit and listen, not just when you're older, you've got to change what you're doing every 45 minutes to an hour. So just as you're getting into something, bell rings, off you go, next class, sit down. Back, now you've suddenly got to switch. You know, you were doing maths. Now you've got to do history. Now you've got to do PE. Just, it's just, it's just not the way humans work. It's a bizarre thing to require of kids. That's, that's so true. You, you could never get into a flow state. No, ever. never. It's the whole thing mitigates against any kind of flow state. I mean, not mitigates. What does it mean? Is it mitigates the word I'm looking for? It's, uh, it's, yeah. It's, not, it's, it's something like it, that it sets up to avoid flow. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it sets it's up to avoid it. Perfectly. Yeah. Perfectly yeah. so. Yeah. Uh, our Lauren's just come in to say goodbye, goodbye again. <laughs> Hi, Lauren. Bye. Thank you. Oh, good to talk to you. Bye. Good to talk to you too. Bye. Thank you. So is that is that all part of the theory of school, Naomi? Yeah, you know, um, being this heretic kind of people that we are, uh, we we are already outside the system. We've gone mm -hmm. through that judgment from the. We could go down that rabbit hole as well in a second. Yeah. Um, but to look at it from a critical, from first principles, from uh, in. I'm trying to avoid the word conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah. You know, what is, is school is that, really about? Right. Why is it set up that way to make sure that we can never get into a flow state and to make sure that we're interrupted every 45 minutes and shuffled around and we're in classes of anywhere between 20 to 30 people. We stand yeah. up, sit down together, we move on the sound of a bell. Yeah. 
Well, it sets up on the factory model, isn't it? That's when it, that's where, how it was first started. Really, the school model was designed thinking these are people who are going to be factory workers. They need to learn how to do what they're told. That's what the, and the, you know, the Victorians, when they were setting up their poor schools, they didn't have any fancy ideas about self-actualization or reaching your potential. They wanted children to become employable workers. And part of being an employable worker was doing what you were told and responding to the bell and they set it up like that. It wasn't, I don't think it was ever really, no one ever thought, how do children learn best? Let's set up schools to do that. The only place in which I think they have done that and there's a constant fight to try and keep it there is in nursery education. I think in nursery education, there has been much more of a, a understanding of how children learn. And I actually think that's because nursery children are pretty well impossible to manage in a large class of seated in desks. You know, they nursery children are fantastic at resistance of that kind of thing. And I think most, most cultures have discovered that it's just not worth shutting two and three year olds in desks and trying to make them do things. Although I have heard that they do do that in, in Spain, for example, but I think in the UK, at least, nursery education is somewhere where it does, people do take account of child development, but there's a constant pushback of when that period should end, you know, when the play stage of education, there's always a push that it should be, we should be doing proper school, formal learning earlier and earlier and cutting out the play. Whereas actually some countries like Denmark, they have play-based education till they're about eight. And I think Finland as well, seven or eight, much longer of a time when you can just play. And, but even then, they, it's like we allow that for this period of time when they're very young, but now, sorry, it's finished now. Up, you know, you've got to get in your desk. You've got to start doing what you're told. There's this weird idea we have that formal, doing, doing what you're told, formal learning is better than something that you do on your own volition. So we, we're, in this, we're in this period now. Um, you know, a lot of, as you were saying earlier, a lot of parents have got a closer look at the type of stuff that their kids are learning at school. Yeah. They've got to perhaps spend more time with their kids than they ever have before. I know there's a lot of memes go around that, uh, oh, this is hell. I can't wait for the schools to reopen. Yeah. Um, but, you know, let, let, let's take a step back and actually think about this critically. Like, you know, what are we actually doing to kids? And if, you know, what's your message to, to parents that, you know, might be facing sending their kids back to school either mm. this week or next month? Um, what because this is such a big issue like you know what what kind of advice could you could you offer so i think lots of things have got merged with this back to school issue because i think children have lots of children have really suffered through the pandemic and they have really missed out and that's always been phrased by the government in the uk as they're missing out on school and that school is what they need to be doing i don't think school is the most important part of what most children have missed out on this year. I think most the most important things have been playing with their peers and a chance to socialize and to be with other children. Because in the UK, in, in England specifically, there has been no exemption for children in terms of playing outdoors. So to, I think I've heard that in Scotland, it's different, that children are allowed to meet under 12 and play outdoors. In the England, they're not. So children have been deliberately stopped from playing with each other, which means that I think many children are desperate to get back to school. And I can completely understand that because it's the only place they can see other children. 
and they need that they need an interaction with other children but I think as parents we need to hold that that actually just because going back to school feels like a relief in some ways for lots of parents because of course parents were put in this impossible position often of of working and trying to manage the homeschooling and the homeschooling that their children were doing was not like the kind of home education that I would be talking about because school was 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 deciding what the children should do and I've heard many parents talk about just how stressful that was effectively they had two full-time jobs trying to keep their child on task to do this stuff and trying to do their job (laughs) and also trying to be there for their child in this time of quite high distress Um, So I think there are many, many things going on. And I think it's much more complex than we've got to get them back in their desks and we've got to get them catching up with this time in school that they've missed. I think they they need to really need to catch up on play. They need to catch up on social interactions. And I think parents need to be thinking about that, whether your child's going back to school or whether they're not going back to school, you need to be thinking about how are they going to get that chance to be with other kids again? How are they going to get that chance to play again? Because I think the play bit is what I would feel that lots of children are going to feel they need and they need to catch up on that's the bit I think we need to catch up on rather than any kind of academics but I think also lots of parents have seen their children be quite different during this period and they've seen their children how their children can be out of school and that actually life can be more relaxed and that they don't have to be on this kind of treadmill of sending them somewhere where they don't want to be then hearing that they're not happy there and trying to get them to do what they want what they're meant to do because actually self-directed education which is the kind of home education I talk about in my book is all about starting with the child and their interests and that's the most amazing thing particularly for kids who might get diagnosis of ADHD or autism because it's about valuing them right here right now if their interest is being really active for example then you can do that in self-directed education. They can, they, that can be what they do when they're five and six. You don't have to get them to sit down in the desk and make them do things. You can spend your time running around in the garden. You can spend your time at the playground. That is, that's what self-directed learning is. And I think that's why it's actually particularly valuable for these kids who are, whose di- developmental trajectories are often out of kilter with the school system. Yes, there's nothing wrong with the kids. Yeah. Exactly. It just isn't. <laughs> they just need a different way. They just need a different environment. They need it's space the to system. Grow. Yeah. It's the system exactly. that's wrong. And it's this disgusting um, selling of sickness that you were talking about, which is uh, very upsetting to, you know, do you have any, is there any long-term side effects of, of like the, the Ritalin stuff? Have studies been done on that? Is that available yet? Or I, I'm not gonna, I don't know enough about the drugs because I'm, that's not my sort of specialist area, really. Mm. Um, and I don't think they know necessarily, because the thing about, the thing about all these diagnoses, that, that in the last 10 years or so, there's been a huge expansion of the number of children who are being diagnosed with autism and with ADHD, because the diagnostic criteria have widened. So there were new, these diagnostic manuals, which we used to diagnose, they're revised every so often. The latest one came out in 2013, DSM-5, that's the American one. And there, there's this guy called Alan Francis, who's a psychiatrist who was actually involved with writing the previous DSM, right, DSM-4. And he's written a book called Saving Normal. And it's all about how the diagnostic criteria are widening and widening to the point where he thinks many, in quotes, normal children and adults are being convinced that they're disordered. 
So a lot of the kids who are getting diagnoses now, we have no idea. We can't, we have no idea whether adult, what they'll be like as adults because they would not have got diagnoses if it was 20, 30 years ago. Do you see what I mean? So there mm. is no, there are no long-term studies of any of this because it hasn't happened for long enough. It's all quite a recent phenomena. So we just, we can't look, we can't look back really because we can't, we haven't got a group. We can't look back and see what, so these kids are being diagnosed now. Let's think of an equivalent group in the third, in the 1970s, what happened to them. We can't because we, they wouldn't have been diagnosed. The diagnostic criteria were different. They're changing all the time. Unbelievable. Soon it'll be, um, you know, snivelly nose. Yep. ADD. Let's go. Let's get you some Ritalin. Yes. <laughs> Well, and it's it's one of those things that varies by area as well. So some places in America, about 20 or 30% apparently of boys are getting diagnoses of ADHD. So it's really, it's really dependent on the culture of a particular area and whether the diagnoses are given out or not. At a certain point, it just becomes so normal that like the parents are kind of just, um, they're, they're, they're tricked into thinking this is like... N- the norm i need my kid diagnosed as well and you know where's the where does that play into things like the the psychology around um us the parents the, mm. the, the people that are bringing the kids up because like you said at the beginning of the show we've all been systemized yeah. ourselves yeah and we all want our children to succeed and we don't want And sometimes I think it can feel like having a diagnosis can be a reason why, it's a reason why your child might be having trouble. And it's really hard to be a parent in a system where your child is having trouble because it's very hard for you to question the school system. You didn't, you went through it. You believe it's the right thing. Every, and all the professionals will tell you it's the right thing. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to write my book actually that typically psychologists, all kinds of health professionals will assume that the best place for a child is school. We assume that school is this kind of fundamental thing about being a child, that there really isn't another good approach, that either you're in school and therefore you're getting an education or you're out of school. And if you're out of school, you're not getting an education. And we see that in all the rhetoric at the moment, the UK government, all about panic about all these children missing education and missing school and how terrible this is going to be. And it's going to cause them to be doomed for years to come. We, you know, we believe very deeply somehow that children should be at school. And so if your child isn't doing well at school, you want to know why. And it's really hard for people to think, well, maybe the problem's school. <laughs> it's actually easier to think the problem's maybe my child. Because also that offers the promise of solution, right? And that's the way that these diagnoses are sold. If you get the diagnosis, you'll get the treatment. And then, you know, that's it kind of thing. And it's a lie because it doesn't work like that. You don't, you know... There's no treatment, apart from the medication, there's no treatment for things like autism and ADHD, which solve the problem, because this is about how children are. You know, you're not going to solve, the the way to solve it is by changing the environment they're in so that they can thrive. Don't dare challenge the education system, Naomi. The the state knows best. (laughs) Indeed, yeah. Get them back in those seats. Uh, (laughs) um, Okay, I, I I think we've, pretty much covered um everything that we needed to cover there that i i hope mm-hmm. has has added a lot of color to to the listeners that um are listening to this now and give them something else to to think about mm-hmm. um is there anything that that we missed that that you'd like to add or round out at all 
no, I just think the most important thing for people to know is that there are other ways of learning other than school and schooling. And so school is actually a choice for most people in most countries, not in every country. Um, and therefore, if you think school is really harming your child or your family, then it's worth looking at other options, even if everybody is telling you that there is there aren't other options and that you must keep that child in school. Because there are so many stories that I know of children who've come out of school and whose life has really taken off when school is no longer part of the factor, not part of the picture. And I think it's just it's important for parents to just know that so that they know they're making an intentional choice. And for many children, school is the right place because it fits, works for their family and they're OK there or they want to be there. And that's fine. I'm not saying that we, every child should be out of school. I'm just saying for parents need to know that there are other ways of learning and that there are other ways of seeing things because then they're making a choice. And I think that's really important. And that's the hidden power, isn't it, of the uh, the educational system? That that fear of judgment when you step away from it, when you challenge yeah. it just a slight bit, yeah. you are torn down very quickly. Well, by... you're sort of treated like a naughty child. I think it's a bit like mm. you see parents. It's almost like they go back to school because mm -hmm. the way that teachers talk, the way that head teachers talk, they feel like they're being told off. Mm -hmm. And lots of parents who have children who struggle in the school system, they feel like they're being constantly told off. It's like they've never really left school themselves because they're constantly being told you've got to do better. Come on, work harder, put in more effort. You could do better. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's not a happy way to live. Yeah, it's deeply ingrained. Mm. Um, okay, so um, this, this, I, I know um, you've, you don't know too much about Bitcoin, but the, the yeah. reason I see the, the two, yeah, the, the, the huge overlap here is <clears throat> because uh, I, I first left the education system, uh, my wife and I decided to take our kids out. And, mm -hmm. you know, once we realized that you could separate education from state, yeah, that that was a choice. Mm. And then when Bitcoin came along and I realized, oh my God, this is just the exact same thing. I can now separate money from I state. See, right, yeah. So I yeah. see as what, um, what you've done and many of the people that you've spoken to in the past that have homeschooled or world schooled or whatever or unschooled, they are taking charge of their education choice for their children. They are, yeah. you know, they're becoming self-sovereign yeah. with that decision about how to raise their kid and what yeah. they believe is best for them and to follow their lead. Uh, yeah. So with money, we're challenging yeah. the financial system because guess what, Naomi? It's a lie. Yeah. It's a complete and utter total legacy system lie, as is the education system. There's the, Both emperors are wearing no clothes. There's a lot of nudity out there. <laughs> <laughs> so I would like to leave you with that analogy and stay completely open to any questions that you might have about Bitcoin and anybody that is listening to this now, um, if, if they would like to reach out to Naomi, where, where can they uh, interact with you, Naomi, and, and learn about your book? And, and So the so. best place to find me is on Twitter. Okay. And my Twitter handle is Naomi C. Fisher, at Naomi C. Fisher. Okay, so. that will be the title. That will be right up there on the title of the episode. Okay. And people can come and find you. And, and my book. Uh, is there a link to your sure. book? There is, is there a, link, a link to your book on your Twitter. There yep. is a link to my book on my Twitter. Yes. And you'll find my book easily. If you just Google changing our minds, Naomi Fisher, it will come up. 
excellent great well, thank you so much for uh, for your time again Naomi and for thank your you. insights I really it's been great it. to talk to you fantastic thank you I look forward to the next one take care <laughs> hey guys well what did you think of that I told you that was going to be something a little bit more different today and I was blown away actually with Naomi the first time I met her last year when I was doing the the homeschooling global summit interviews and that that really resonated with me when she kind of lifted the lid on the whole process of how to diagnose kids and, and, and selling sickness and for me that just such a punch in the gut I am so lucky that we have been blessed that we've not had to go through anything like that and uh, my heart goes out to to any parents that are in the situation or have had to go through this situation or are possibly facing it and I hope that an interview like this with Naomi can just arm you with another uh, choice another insight as to what you are actually able to do when you consider the alternatives to just what we thought was the only way in the education system. We've all been freed up now a great deal with the advent of remote work. So you don't have to now be tied to a physical location, whether for your work or even for your school, you can take your schooling remote. Our kids are on Galileo.com. Go and listen to my episode with Vlad Stan, the CEO of Galileo. If you've got kids aged between 8 to 18, this could be a really great option for you because this is a self-directed education platform. This is an online global school. My kids love it. They get exposed to kids from all around the world. They get exposed to facilitators, teachers from all around the world that you know just love turning up and interacting with the kids. And when you watch these Zoom calls take place, they're all on the same platform. They're all on the same level, I should say. There, there's no hierarchy, there's no I'm in charge of the class. It's all completely open and you know the, the facilitators let the lesson or the club go where it should go. And there are student-led clubs that are also brilliant. And look into your local groups, find, connect with your local homeschool groups. There's a ton of information out there that you just didn't know was at your fingertips. I guarantee it. Hit up your local Facebook, World School, Homeschool, Unschool group, Forest School, Steiner School, Prender, anything, anything like that, you'll find something. You'll be able to reach out and touch a community that can help you with solid evidence. Because if you start bouncing ideas off of people, friends or family that are just stuck in the system, it's not gonna fly. It's like bouncing ideas off people that don't understand Bitcoin or don't want to understand Bitcoin because they're so entrenched in the legacy system. We all have had that experience. It's only when you meet another Bitcoiner that you click immediately. And that's what it's like when you meet somebody that has taken themselves outside of the educational system and they can give you real life social proof evidence and meet their kids. My goodness, you, you meet some of these homeschooled kids. It's amazing. Like the difference in their demeanor and the way that they interact with adults is truly refreshing. I couldn't recommend it enough to, if you're in the, this research phase, I strongly suggest that you reach out to, uh, you know, I'm always open, my DMs are open, I can help in, in any way I can. Um, but definitely check your local area, 
And if you've got that one homeschool friend that uh, you've been avoiding for the last few years, reach out. Don't be afraid. Uh, You know, swallow that pride. Go and find out what's going on. And hopefully those people that have been ignoring you about Bitcoin for the last few years will have the, 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 you know, the, the, the foresight to do the same and come and ask you about Bitcoin and how we can help them. So that's, like I said, a, a slightly different episode. Please reach out to Naomi on Twitter. She would love to interact with, with this community and I'm sure we can help her with any questions she might have and spread her message and spread her book. It's amazing that people go ahead and, and do this kind of work. So before we sign out, I just want to give uh, the quick shill to the companies that support the show. Big love to all of these companies. Thank you for finding me. Thank you for listening. Thank you thank you for supporting the show and, and helping me. Now, if you're in the UK and you want to start stacking some sats or you want to increase your stack, you can do that at the Bitcoin-only exchange, the only exchange in the world, actually, that fully audits their book monthly and has proof of keys that's coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten use that code you'll save on commission and then in the u.s thank you everybody for listening across the states over across the pond you can start stacking with swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten a, a great company full of amazing bitcoiners you can also in europe across europe Start stacking with Relay, R-E-L-A-I dot C-H forward slash Bitten. Start stacking some sats. But remember, guys, when you start stacking these sats, you've got to start the next level. The next logical step is start learning about hardware wallets because that is how you custody the Bitcoin that you are purchasing. And you can do that with shiftcrypto.ch forward slash Bitten, another Swiss company. And if you... me. <laughs> It makes sense for Swiss companies to be building hardware wallets, I guess. So use that code, you'll get a, uh, a little discount. And make sure you order the Bitbox 02 Bitcoin only edition. If you want to check out my website, it's once-bitten.com. There you can learn about my book. It's called Choose Life, where I do have a full chapter dedicated to uh, the subject of, of world schooling or homeschooling alternative education. And it chronicles my escape from the rat race and many other things that uh, hopefully might add some value to you and your families. I just want to say a huge thanks, guys. Very, very humbled that you're all tuning in. Really appreciate all of you interacting on Twitter, rating, reviewing, subscribing, whatever it is you do to support the show in your own way. Thank you, and I look forward to the next show. Take care.